right, well, good evening, church. I'm uh, not going to lie, it does feel a little bit like deja vu to be in church at night again. Um, but I appreciate everyone for coming. Uh, tonight we're going to be actually starting a new series in the Baptist Catechism. Uh, we're going to be making our way through this catechism once a month, and as we continue in this series, um, I may take each question one at a time. I may lump a couple of them together um, as we make our way through that. However, tonight we're just starting with the very first question. I will warn you ahead of time, um, this sermon, because it is the very first one, may be a little bit longer than what you can expect in the future. Um, there is some groundwork that I would like to lay, being that it's the first sermon for the series, uh, but the goal is to, you know, the goal moving forward is to actually clock in around 25 to 30 minutes, okay? So I haven't fully timed this sermon, so just buckle up. It'll be all right. Um, in all seriousness, I hope that this series is actually a blessing to you all, um, that it will help you to remember doctrine better, that we would all see the value of the catechism, and that we would use this as a resource for ourselves, for our families, for our children. Now, there are many catechisms that exist, and there are many historic catechisms that have informed and influenced the Protestant faith for hundreds of years. Um, however, for this series, the reason why I chose to go through the Baptist catechism uh, is for, for two reasons specifically. Number one, we're a confessional 1689 professing Reformed Baptist Church, right? Uh, the 1689 is our confession of faith, and I think it makes sense that we would use the Baptist Catechism for this series because it was created to be used in tandem with our confession. Uh, the second reason is that I, that I know that many of us have um, this copy that I have here of the 1689. Um, in the back of this confession, the catechism is in the, is in the very back of it. So I don't know if everybody has this copy. I do know that there is white copies that are outside um, as you make your way into the doors. There's uh, some white ones over there. The, the only difference I know between this one and that one is mine is in Old English, but that'll be okay. So um, they're nearly identical. It'll be all right. Um, and, and lastly, this actually saves everybody from having to look up or to go out and buy a new catechism just for this series. So before we jump into the very first question, I want to give us a brief history on catechisms, right? Their purpose, their format, and their importance. Um, I don't plan to spend a lot of time here, but if you're like me, I need to know the why, okay? Um, I need to know why something is important. I need to know why it's useful for me to know, and I, need, and I need to know why it exists. I need to know the history behind it. So ironically, I can't tell you why I must know the why, but this is just how my brain works, and if, and if, um, if I don't know why something exists, exists, or why it's important, or why it's useful for me to know, I have a really hard time learning and truly understanding it. So I didn't want us to just jump into this series without answering some of those why questions. Uh, I didn't want us to jump into this series without seeing the value or, or possibly thinking, well, I guess we're just going to go through this because Dave wants to, right? There's value in the catechism. Now, to try to show you that value and answer some of those why questions, uh, what I'm going to do is actually compare and contrast the confession to a catechism so we can actually categorize their functions. Um, these aren't academic definitions by any means. This is just how I would differentiate the two if someone asked me to explain them in person. Okay, so take that with a grain of salt. But um, simply put, a confession, a, a confession communicates the faith, the beliefs, and the doctrine of a theological 
theological tradition systematically, okay? It distills doctrine and theology into a series of paragraphs that are easier to understand and to grapple with. It's clear, it's precise, it's to the point, and it gives scripture references to show the reader where they find the support for what's being confessed or what's being taught. And functionally, confessions are used to clearly articulate one's theological tradition and aid the church in this theological teaching. So in the same way, the purpose, um, it, the, the catechism has almost the same purpose, which sounds weird, but it, it's clear and articulate teaching of doctrine and theology with scripture references to go along with it. However, this is what makes it different. The format of the catechism is defined by a series of question and answer that are specifically made for memorization, okay? The catechism is, is very succinct, but it's functionally used to help believers memorize doctrine and theology. And this is just another way of communicating what we believe with a useful method for memorization that's, that's been around since the Protestant Reformation. Um, as a quick side note, um, the earliest catechism that we're aware of is called the Didache, which dates back actually to the first century. But the use of this question and answer format is actually popularized by Martin Luther in his small catechism that was written in 1529, okay? We use creeds, we use confessions, we use catechisms, and they protect and inform the church. And in this series, I hope, um, will allow us to use the Baptist catechism as another tool that we can put in our toolbox and use it when we need to. So now that we've addressed uh, some of the purpose, some of that history, and the reasons for going through the catechism, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll head to our first question. Our Father, uh, we come to you now, and we ask that you would uh, bless me, that you would bless this church as we go through this catechism. Uh, I ask that you would allow us to see the value in catechesis, and I ask that you would help us to remember and memorize these truths that are derived from your word. I ask that this church and its families would flourish spiritually, um, that we would be edified by this series, and that we would use this tool to teach ourselves and our children your precepts. Lastly, I ask that you would be glorified in this series. We ask all these things by the blood of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So, as we jump into this first question, uh, this is where we are going, right? We're going to start with the question. We're going to explain the doctrine that's being taught. We're going to show the scriptural texts, and we're going to look for application. Uh, this is going to be the format for this entire series from here on out. Um, and to kick this series off, I felt like it just wouldn't be doing it justice if I did not give, if I didn't give some of that background and some of the reasons for why the catechism is important. Uh, but for the rest of this series, this format is going to be our starting point, and for the coming months, we're going to just be tackling the questions uh, in this format, okay? So now let's actually get to the first question. Baptist Catechism, question one. Who is the first and chiefest being? Answer, God is the first and chiefest being. Now, to point out the doctrine that's being taught here before we kind of get into this, I would say that it is the preeminence or the supremacy of God, okay? You will notice that in our answer, we are actually taught two things about God. 
that he is the first being, and that he is the chiefest being. Now, that seems simple enough. I'm sure that everyone in this room could draw conclusions from those two statements. And I'm sure, um, you know, we, we can take those and run with them. We understand it. It's easy. But I actually want us to kind of flesh those two statements out for just a minute, right? Let's think about the first thing um, that we should ask as we look at these answers, or this answer. And the first thing that I would ask is, what is meant by first? I would say that the, that the obvious thing that immediately comes to our minds is his eternality, right? His eternal nature. The fact that God has always existed. Now, for probably everybody in this room, we already believe this. Uh, to us, this is kind of a simple, fundamental characteristic of, of God that all of us would say that we hold to. But as we consider the main doctrine being taught in this answer, the, the preeminence, the superiority of God, we see that this is the umbrella doctrine that would house many like the eternality of God. Everything, um, let me back up for a second. What I want us to actually think about is the, the eternality of God, right? We say that, we're familiar with that word, but sit and kind of play with it tangibly and really think about this, right? The fact that everything you've ever seen or read about, everything you know of ever existing in all of history, before space, before matter, before gravity, before plants and stars and moon, um, solar systems or energy ever existed, before the earth existed, before plants and oceans, metals, animals, mankind, or any living organism that you've ever known of, before time ever existed, God existed before it. We believe this truth, but it's, it's as if sometimes it becomes old news or it becomes something that we just accept for, as something that is simple. We know it, we hear it, we would say that we, that we believe that. Um, but in all reality, it's the farthest thing from something to believe simply. This truth should leave us in awe and in wonder. We don't know of anything that's not been created. We don't know of anything that's not been a part of the created order. We don't know of anything that's, ever been, that's not ever been affected by time or something that has no beginning or no end. As finite creatures with finite minds, we can barely begin to truly comprehend anything, let alone a being that is not a part of the created order or the concept of time. We can barely find words to truly and accurately describe our infinite God, the first being. Now, I don't think that this answer in our catechism is only meant to make us consider God's existence before space-time. Um, as we think about what is meant by God as first, I think that we should also ask, what does it look like to acknowledge God as first? God is the first being in his eternality, but this truth is not just something that we affirm intellectually, but a truth that should manifest itself practically in our lives. We are to acknowledge God as first by prioritizing him as first in our lives. I know that may sound cliche. Um, I bet that there's uh, another thing that we could all, uh, it, I bet it's another thing that we would be all quick to affirm. But I'm serious that this is where we always tend to see a disconnect between the head and between the body. Okay, and what I mean by that, as an example, um, we, we commonly point out to atheists, we point out to nihilists that they claim to believe something intellectually, 
yet they live their lives in a way that shows us that what they truly believe is something very different from what they claim, right? Lord, help us if we are the ones doing the exact same thing. That's a tall order, and I know that. And I'm not standing here saying that I'm killing this myself because I had my, my, my teeth kicked in as I was writing this and I was, as I was thinking about this concept. It's nearly impossible to actually do this as we wrestle with the flesh. But let me ask you, do, do we even try? Genuinely. Ask yourself, what do we truly place as first in our lives? What does your life revolve around the most? Would it be work, sports, politics, family, your children's sports and their activities? None of these things are inherently bad, and that's not what I'm saying at all. But I've done it, and I've seen when people end up pushing God on the back burner, and they prioritize other things to the point that their everyday schedule is so jam-packed that they cannot seem to find the time to read, to pray, to make it to small group, or to study. But we know we can find the time, right? We cut the fat. We change our priorities. Not only should we acknowledge God as first by making a conscious effort of making him a priority in our day-to-day, but let's go even a little bit deeper, okay? Let me ask you this. Do we acknowledge God as first and prioritize him in our thinking? Not just how we live, but how we think. So what do I mean by that? Do you acknowledge God as first in your political views? Let's use that as an example. Or does he contend for priority as you daydream about the nostalgia of the founding fathers or a current social justice movement? Do you acknowledge God as first in how you think of and treat your spouse? How about your children? How about your thoughts of your coworkers? Or how you think about work ethic? We are called to work as if we are working unto the Lord, are we not? Do you acknowledge God as first in how you think of and interact with and serve your church? What about that person or a group of people that you don't like or get along with? Do you acknowledge God as first in the things you think or the things that you say to them? Is it truly a critique and a condemnation of their sin? Or is it just a hateful heart disguised in virtuous critiques? Do you acknowledge God as first in the academic and societal or philosophical ideas and beliefs that you encounter, that you deal with. And nearly all forms of how we live our lives, physically and intellectually, we ought to be questioning. What does scripture say about this? What does God teach us about this idea or this topic or this action or this belief? I know that's a long list of questions, and I hope I didn't lose you in that, but I want us to genuinely think about what it truly means to acknowledge God as first in our lives, physically, mentally. God is the first being, eternally, yes. But God is worthy of being first, not just intellectually, but practically in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. Now, I don't want us to forget about this second statement. Uh, The second statement in our answer that tells us about God, right? That God is the chiefest being. Again, I'm not sure that we would all find a, that we wouldn't be able to find the general conclusion of what's being made here. But let's go ahead and brainstorm this, okay? Consider what's meant by God as being called the chiefest being. 
Uh, you guys may laugh, but as I first read this without studying or anything like that, I was, I was very interested in the use of the word chiefest to describe God. It's, it's just not a word that we use or that we really even see anymore. Um, not to mention, it's never really used in reference to God. So at first, as I read this, uh, what actually popped into my head was literally an image of a stereotypical chief and a headdress, okay? But I then started thinking about tribal societies, right? My, my mind wanders. And as I'm thinking about these things, tribal societies in South America, Africa, even Native Americans, right? About the power and the prestige that comes with being chief. And it dawned on me just how fitting this word is. Think with me here, okay? Think about what comes with being titled chief for many of these tribal societies. The chief is the final authority. All things are subject to him and his will for that tribe. He is the one who makes all the laws for the tribe. He is the one who is the judge. He is distinguishable amongst all the others. You can pick him out from half a mile away. He is approached with reverence and respect. The tribe follows his leadership. And think of this. He dictates who is allowed citizen, citizenship into his tribe. You can see why this word uh, is fitting to be used here. The chief is the Lord, the king, the ruler of his tribe. It's a great title, but our God is not just a chief amongst many. He is the chiefest being. And remember, this answer in this catechism is pointing us towards the preeminence, the supremacy of God. God is not just the chief of his own people, but of all people, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. As Vodi Vakum puts it, God is not running for God. He does not need your approval. He has no care for approval ratings. He has no term limit. He has no campaign to run. He has no cosmic summit that he must negotiate deals with because he negotiates with no one. He has no checks and balances to his power and to his rule. And there is no branches of heaven that can restrict his will and his power. People may chant, people may yell, not my God. They can write it on their Twitter accounts. They can write it on Facebook, on Instagram as much as they want. People may rage and plot, but it's all done in vain because he is objectively, both now and forever, God. Their God, our God. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The absolute sovereignty of God in all things is truly a foreign concept to us because all men, all presidents, all prime ministers, all kings, all chiefs, all rulers have someone that they will answer to, except for the chiefest of beings. He is the sovereign monarch, sovereign monarch of the cosmos, and his reign has no end. I hope that this shows you how big God is. As I sit and think about this, and as I, sit and, as I sat and wrote this, it dawned on me how small you feel as you look at the characteristics of God that he was here before we even knew what time was, that he exists outside of it, that all things that are created are due to him. It's mind-blowing for me, and these are simple things that we already say that we believe, 
but when we sit and we think introspectively about it, it really is very hard to correctly explain God and his characteristics. Now, to move us along, I want to take a look at a couple, a couple of the scripture references at the bottom of the first question. Okay, I don't know if you have those in your hand. Um, there are three that are down there, and I just added one extra. Okay? What we need to ask, though, as we look through the catechism, as we make our way through the series, is can we see in the scriptures where they found that answer, that God is first and that God is the chiefest being? Can we see the preeminence and the supremacy of God in all things? I would say absolutely. Listen to what God says about himself. It's Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 7. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Isaiah 48, 11 through 13. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. My hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. And when I call them, they stand forth together. Psalm 97, 9 says, For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And the last thing I have for us is Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So to wrap this up, and I think I did fairly well on time, we're going to briefly recap three of those main points, right? A couple quick things. Number one, God as first being. He is the uncreated, eternal, always existing God. Before anything that we knew of in all of history, he existed before it. It still boggles my mind. He exists outside of space and time, and this truth leaves us in awe and wonder of his majesty. Secondly, God should be put first in the life of the believer. God must be the focal point of our lives. We must work to prioritize him as first in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, and in our deeds. We should not just submit to this intellectually and, let, and yet live a life that is void of what we say we believe. Just as we criticize atheists or nihilists about the inconsistency of what they say they believe and how they live. We must make changes. I must make changes that I see I need to prioritize and reprioritize to make God a priority more than what I'm doing now. The third thing, God is the chiefest of beings. Simply put, he is unmatched. He has no rival. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and will forever be the sovereign ruler of all things. We are not to just admit this truth mentally, but to believe upon it functionally. What we believe in our hearts, should manifest itself in how we live our lives. 
Christian, the God that we believe in, the only God, is a God of power that is incontestable and sovereignty that is irresistible. Think upon that. Continue to read through your catechism. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would encourage us with these truths, that what we said would be edifying to your people, that we would take this resource and use it for your glory, that we would teach ourselves and our families the truths that we find in this catechism. Lord, I thank you for this church and for this building, the blessings that you have given this congregation, and I pray that you would continue to work within this church, that we would continue to grow in number and in spirit. We ask all of these things through Christ. Amen.